So I'm talking with Via Taya, and Taya, as I know her, I've known her for a long time. I've known her growing up through middle school and through high school. And in fact, Taya was the first girl we ever worked with at Fire Mountain. Uh, when we began, we were a teen sober home. And as you all know, we are a full residential treatment program now. But Taya was the first one we ever worked with to say, all right, let's let's bring a girl into the program. Let's let's begin to expand working away uh, just with boys and create a co-ed program. And uh, I had interviewed Taya recently on the Medicating Children podcast, and I was reminded of how powerful and potent her story was. And quite frankly, it's a story that so many of you with kids, especially with daughters, have had. And this conversation that Taya has is going to have with me and has had with me in the past is the conversation that I have had with your daughter. If she has ever, uh, if you have ever been in contact with me or your child has been in contact with us, this story is more normal than it should be. And that's why we brought Taya on the show. My name is Aaron Huey. I'm your host of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining me. My guest today is Taya. Taya, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. We're also doing this live on Facebook as a sneak peek on a very private page that I have called Parenting Teens That Struggle because I want parents to watch and listen and hear and learn from your story because it started way back at the beginning and now we here we are you're a mommy you're a college grad you're enrolled in a phd program and taya no one that knew you back in the day would think that this is where you are now but you are here so congratulations you. you've worked your ass off and i am really curious about the story from the beginning to now where we are yeah. Uh, you know, I really think my story really started. Um, so my parents split up when I was three. Um, and so I, for my entire life was raised by my, my mom. And, um, I bring that up because I, I think it really started with, um, even at a young age, I felt abandoned by my dad. Of course, I didn't have the vocabulary to, to express that, but, um, I've always felt this kind of void of, you know, I really wanted a father figure. Um, and, you know, even early on in elementary school, uh, one of my earliest memories of realizing that, you know, not all families were like my family with just one parent, one really awesome mom was I was invited to a um, father and daughter camping trip. Um, and I was the only one without a dad. And um, I realized like there was something missing and you know I couldn't put my finger on it and it was really hard and um you know that trip was also full of bullying um they drew on my face with permanent marker um and so that was also a really big moment in my life of like realizing that um I was a little bit different and then I really because I felt this void um and this kind of this hole in, you know, who I was and wanting relationship and connection that I wasn't getting for what, 
whatever reason with my mom. Um, and by the way, she's amazing. And, you know, I love my relationship with her, but I wanted something else. I needed something else. Um, and yeah, so that, that trip really was kind of this pinnacle for me of, um, where I can kind of see this, this social piece that has been such a big, uh, part of my story kind of start to develop. How old were you during uh, that camping trip? When did that happen? I think it was third grade. So I want to say, honestly, it was right around the time that I was diagnosed with bipolar as well. Interesting. Yeah. So, so everything really was happening right there. I was eight or nine. Um, I want to say, yeah. So um, yeah, that was, that was a really hard trip. Um, and yet I still like, I let them draw my face and they put baby powder all over me and like did all these really like mean things, but I wanted to be friends with these girls and I wanted to be accepted, um, to the point that I was like, do it like, you know, and, and it felt really crappy. It didn't feel great. You know, no one wants their, their face drawn on with permanent marker. Um, but it just, yeah, that's my earliest memory of really wanting this acceptance and this love. How old were you said, you said that was about the same time that you were diagnosed that with bipolar, what was going on in your behavior during that time that prompted your mom? And I've known your mom for, for yeah. such a long time. And, you know, one of the reasons why you're, you're a great story in the medicating children thing is because that's probably one of the last things your mom would have tried, you know, just, just knowing your mom, she's very bolder, hippie and new age and, and ready to, you know, <laughs> she'll cover you in crystals as soon as do anything else. And then all of a sudden you're at a psychiatrist or saying bipolar. Why were they saying that? Um, so I was having some really intense mood swings. Um, I was also having these fits of rage, um, and these like out of body experiences. Um, so, and these would last for hours. I'm talking like something little would set me off. My mom saying, um, and they started pretty randomly. So my mom would say, and they started actually around three and, um, we'll, we'll go back to this once we get to, to the fire mountain. But, um, yeah, so, you know, but they got worse as I got older. Um, and just these like fits of rage and trying to self harm and, you know, um, wrapping cords around my neck and just like out of control behavior and no one could calm me down. Um, you know, and it would just have to like play its course and then I would come back um, and it would be like nothing happened. Um, but they were really intense and they started happening at school. Um, and I was running away, you know, during class, I was just getting up and bolting. Um, and yeah, just these really intense, um, yeah, it mostly fits of rage, not so much the depressive. So, you know, when I was um, younger, but more just rage and out of body. What was the earliest age or time that you remember, um, hurting yourself or wanting to hurt yourself at a level where ending your life, uh, was a conscious thought where th that was actually something that you were intending? Yeah, I think that was probably around 11. Um, so that was a, a little bit later. Um, there were two incidents that came to mind. So one of my first medications was Seroquel, um, and I got a hold of it and I took the whole bottle. Um, and intentionally, intentionally. Yep. Um, and, and that was really, um, I think, you know, and now that I look back at it, I just, 
yeah, there was just so much rage there and I was just done. And mostly the rage was towards myself because I hated the way that I was making my family feel. I hated, you know, it was just this intense um, feelings of guilt in myself that I was acting this way. I didn't want to act this way. I wasn't doing it for attention, even though, you know, lots of people were saying I was. Sure. Um, and yeah. And then the other incident was, I kind of mentioned it was I wrapped cords around my neck um, that were attached to, to the wall, you know, plugged in um, until I passed out uh, and would do that repeatedly. I come back and I, I would tighten it again. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was really early on. Do you remember when your first trip to an acute unit was a, a temporary three day, seven day stay at a, uh, adolescent acute unit? I can't, I want to say they were all right around that, like nine to 12 phase. Right. Um, I had a five day stay at, um, a juvenile, um, mental mental unit yeah. um and that was really intense actually i think that one was longer um and then i also we had a, you know my mom really was trying like you said the medication was she understood my mom was so good at understanding that medication was not the end all right. medication was part of a bigger plan right bigger um bigger idea to help medicate or help help me um and so she tried to get a social worker to help us. Um, and I ended up cutting myself in front of him. Um, and he called the cops on me. Uh, and that was anyway, traumatic and, you know, not helpful at all. Why, why uh, was it traumatic? Why, 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 it, you know, hindsight is, and you being yeah. trained as you are now, he did what he did to protect you, but traumatic because why? Be, because I was really trying to be listened to. Like, I just felt like he was not seeing me. He totally, they totally, um, you know, this is a common theme, but I felt so trapped in that moment. Um, and so, yeah, it was just traumatic because he ended up saying that I threatened him with the knife, um, even though it was all me. Like, and, you know, um, yeah, I never once, you know, pointed at him and, and I get that. I think he realized that I needed something more. And so I, you know, again, in hindsight, I don't think his intentions were malice in any way. Um, I think he was trying to get me help in a, in a different capacity. Um, but yeah, I ended up staying in juvie for that one. Um, and I think I was there almost two weeks, but that was, that was an eye opener to me of like, whoa, um, you know, I was, I was there with some really intense young women, um, and realizing, yeah, that, that, that was, that was not where I wanted to be. Um, and that was not the support I needed, but I didn't know how to communicate that. I, at your, at that age, of course you don't have the words and we're still talking like just coming into junior high. Yeah. Now changes take place in junior high in kids. You started to get interested in boys that, uh didn't make things easier for you. No. Um, I think really that switch, you know, I talked about trying to get the attention of girls my own age and really wanting to, to fit in with them and somewhere right around there, you know, hormones kick in. And, um, I realized that there was another group that was willing to give me attention in right. a, uh, quote unquote, nicer way, you know, they weren't bullying me. Um, right. and so it felt 
felt nicer to me. Um, and it was also, it really, from really that age, it was a older crowd of boys that took interest in me. Um, and that felt good too, because I was still really trying to work through this abandonment that I felt from my dad. Um, so for me, like, and I was, I was pretty, pretty sheltered. So I, you know, I, I had no idea about this, um, the sexual piece of, of attraction between male and female at that point. I really, I was just so glad that I was, I was being seen or thought I was being seen. Um, and so, yeah, that, that really started right around 12. Um, and that really, I mean, that was a very fast and hard roller coaster downhill. There's a little bit of disassociation right there. What happened? Where'd you go? Just thinking about, um, abuse started right around that time. Um, my first, um, sexual abuse encounter was right around 14. So that's where I went for a second. Yeah. This is also when dependency began. What, yeah. what was, where, what were the choices? How did you, how did you get introduced to it? Where, 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 where was the attraction to which kind? Yeah. So, um, backing up a little bit, I had my first drink at 11 and a half. Um, and it was with a neighbor. Um, they were a couple of years older and, uh, you know, their dad had, had a bottle of vodka on the counter and they were like, you want some? And, you know, again, with that, it wasn't, I wasn't looking for anything. I didn't really know what liquor was. And, um, and so I kind of, you know, I just wanted to be a part of the cool crowd. You know, here I was this little kid hanging out with some teenagers and, um, I wanted to fit in too. Um, and you know, I, I found that alcohol was really cool. (laughs) Um, it, it took off that edge for me and that anxiety that, you know, now I know so well, um, by that name of anxiety. Um, and yeah, from there, it really, um, it really started in middle school with marijuana, I would say was, was the main thing. I personally did not like marijuana at all. Um, it made me more paranoid and more anxious, but that's really what, um, middle schoolers had access to. Um, so I could, I continued to use it. Um, and that quickly eighth grade went down into, um, harder drugs. Um, definitely prescription drugs were also prevalent and I really liked those. Um, for me, you know, that, that was the first time that I had an experience of like, oh, there's something else. Like I didn't have to be in my head. Um, the numbing for me was what I got from those. Um, and I broke my collarbone too, freshman year. Um, and they, they gave me, um, unlimited supply of Oxycontin. Wow. Um, and it was only my mom saying like, you need to stop. Um, cause I started selling them in school because people were, I was getting attention from it. Um, and I think that's important too, is like, it just comes back to, for me, it wasn't, it was just social. I was, I was being seen by people. Um, whereas anytime I wasn't engaging in some of these activities, I just felt, uh, invisible. 
Um, and I also felt crazy because I just was dealing with all these emotions that I didn't have names for. Just taking a pause here. How, when you really look back at this, yeah, is this, is the root, the abandonment? Yeah. Yeah. How do you reconcile I, that? How, I, I mean, you're, you're, you, after everything is said and done, just giving, just giving everybody who's listening and watching a brief glimpse forward from medication bipolar at nine to now enrolling in a PhD master's program, having two children, being successfully married, you know, there's, there's this, there's this middle ground that just sounds like hell. And how do we get from some kids not having uh, uh, families that are together to your version of that. And how does not having a dad translate into you selling oxy and, uh, uh, finding how, how does it go that far? What is that really all that's, that that's there? Yeah. I, you know, it's something that I'm still working on. I'll be completely honest. It's something that I, I'm still working with a therapist on because it doesn't feel, sometimes it doesn't feel enough. It's, it feels superficial, right. but I just, I just know for me personally and my, my personality, I am such an empath, empath and I just like, I feel everything. So when my dad left, I thought it was me. That was, and so I internalized everything. So yeah, for me, I just, I think there wasn't enough communication and I, I think there wasn't enough processing. People think that younger kids, right? I was three at the time when my dad left that younger kids don't need processing. We don't have to talk about them to them about their feelings. And that is total bull crap. Like we don't have, we have to talk about it. We have to change the conversation, you know, so that it's, it's appropriate to them. But I think that's the biggest thing is I didn't get to process it when I was three. So it just built up and built up and built up. And I never, no one told me why he left. No one, you know, it was always like, oh, he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. I'm almost 27 and he's still not back. So, you know, I just, yeah, I think there wasn't enough processing there. And just like any trauma and any, you know, and, and I just want to point out that trauma doesn't have to be this big event. That's the other thing that, you know, is really important to remember is just because it wasn't traumatic to you as a parent, it may have been traumatic to your child. And I think that's, that's what it was for me because it wasn't traumatic to my sister. That's the other, that's the other thing she, she's been able to write off our, our dad really well, you know, and, and not have struggle with the same, same things that I have in terms of the relationship or the lack of relationship. I remember at times him trying to summon up something to reach out to you. And, and at times you summoning up something to reach out to him. When was the last time you connected with him at all? 2000. 18, but funny enough, he was afraid of me um, because I had found some power to kind of say like, nah, I don't really want a relationship. Um, and he used my sister, which was really cruel um, to kind of reach out. And he wanted, he's, he's apparently back in Colorado. So he wanted to see her, but not me. Um, and, and I shut it down and I blocked all numbers and, um, yeah, he doesn't even know he's a grandfather, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> wow. How bad did the drugs get? Really bad. Um, 
I, right around that, that time again, um, 12 ish, I started going to raves. Um, and there I started using some pretty heavy drugs, um, especially, um, MDMA, um, cocaine. Uh, I got introduced to meth during that time as well. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, at first it was, it was sneaking out and going to these raves and using while I was at, at the raves. Um, again, I, I think it's important to remember that I didn't have a strong social network. So I ended up in some pretty, pretty sticky situations because, you know, I would take the bus or, or hitch a ride with someone at 12 to go to a rave. And then they would, they would go to after parties and I would be stuck. Um, and so, you know, pretty quickly the drugs turned into not just to have fun, but just to, to escape. Um, and so, yeah, I started using, um, MDMA like at school, you know, to get through the day and, um, yeah, just all the time. It's a, it's amazing because for me thinking of Taya means also thinking about dancing because dancing has always had this, I mean, it's always been, always was, I don't know if it still is, but was such a massive part of your life. It was, it was a source of freedom for you. And it was associated with so much sneaking out and drug use and being around people you shouldn't be around and on and on and on all throughout high school. What were the best and worst of dancing? And is it still a part of your life? Yeah. So, um, dance is not as much a part of my life. Um, and I, I think because I realized that just for me, I, I had to step back a little bit, um, at least, at least from, from the go-go side of it and the, the association, because I, w- I was still, even though I, I switched my mind, you know, for me, I still felt myself falling into these, like using it for the wrong attraction reasons. Um, and it just, it just didn't feel healthy for me. Um, so yeah, I still love to dance for myself and in my bedroom, but I've, I've stepped back from the the professional side of it. Um, and I think the worst of it, I, I mean, just, again, I just, I just wanted to be seen. I know I've said that a million times now, but, um, and so, you know, the worst of it, of just like telling telling us there were three of us that it was auditions and ending up in, in some guy's really creepy rundown apartment. And it was not auditions, um, you know, and, and yeah, just experiences like that of like, you know, all I wanted to do was dance. Cause for me, I realized that that was a healthy escape. You know, I, I got some of the feelings of, um, being high without being high when I was dancing. Cause I could kind of do that out of body experience, but come back a, a little quicker, um, when I was dancing, but yeah, just, just some unhealthy, not so great situations. Cause in, uh, in all honesty, who's gonna, who's gonna hire a 16 year old unless you're kind of a, a sleaze bag. You're just, yeah. When did you know it was time for treatment? I mean, you didn't, you didn't really battle coming into fire mountain. That was, you know, there, there was conversation around it, but, but it was, I don't remember you fighting it. I remember you taking it on. 
You didn't always yeah. like it, but you didn't, you didn't, you didn't fight it. I don't think I ever knew that I needed treatment. I think I, I knew that I needed a change. Um, and I also, I mean, Fire Mountain was the first time I felt like I could take a breath um, and just relax. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think, remind me if I'm wrong, but I got expend, um, detention and then I got expelled Right. And that for selling familiar. drugs. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And and you and my mom had some sort of agreement that I would do school at your house. Um, and then one day I just didn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah, it was like that. It wasn't it wasn't the uh the Disneyland like poor Nisha had where, you know, he was like, we're going for pizza and then he get dropped off at fire mountain. Yeah. <laughs> but cause it was a little bit more of maybe she should just stay and your mom going, yeah. And you calling, yeah, that's good. You know, I think, I think I can stay. And it, it, I mean, it, it, like I said, it, it, I don't, I don't think we left hook you. I don't remember left hooking you on that thing. I remember you being a, a pretty willing participant in the breathing, you yeah. know, taking I, that breath. Yeah. I think I freaked out right after because yeah. it kind of hit me, especially I had a really bad detox and withdrawal. Yeah. Um, that was really intense. Uh, however, um, yeah, after that it kind of hit me, but then I realized like I was still there and I, I feel, I think I, I realized too, um, when I first entered fire mountain, there was a part of me because I was the first girl that I think it made it easier too. Cause I still had that attention of sure. like, Oh, it's the Taya show for a little bit. And I needed that. <laughs> I totally needed that Sure. In, in a safe contained environment. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, my transition overall was, was just, yeah, I just surrendered to it. I was exhausted, Aaron. I was so exhausted. I was done. I didn't want to do the partying anymore. I, you know, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to do the abusive relationships. I didn't want to do the beating myself up. Yeah. I was just tired. I, I have to say, uh, Chris and I still laugh at, uh, you know, every, every time it was around bedtime, we knew Taya was going to appear in the doorway and, you know, and have a conversation with Chris and I as, you know, so, so there's definitely a, a refamilying that is taking place, right? Um, your relationship with your mom's always been very good. You've always been very open and confrontational yet loving with your mom and her with you and on and on. And, um, I swear it was like a year and a half ago that I was thinking about that. And Chris and I were talking about it. We were like, remember, and every, every night it's like eight 30, Taya appears at the doorway and she has to talk. We're like, Taya, go to bed. She's like, Aaron, Aaron. <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on me that you were running distractions so that some of the boys could sneak out. <laughs> I was like, Hey, she went, Hey, wait a second. And like years later, almost 10 years later, I was like, Oh, that little bitch. She was, she was totally guilty. <laughs> but we also knew at that time just how important that experience of connection, that there, that there was a routine to it. Um, and we knew the boys were sneaking out. We knew that that type of thing was going on. We, at that time, we weren't the type of facility that we are now where we had 24-hour staff and cameras all over the facility and alarms on the doors and windows and stuff like that. It was more of a sober home 
concept. But was there any time during the treatment that stands out to you as something that said, Hey, this is, you're going to be all right. Like this is going to work. There's, there's going to be things coming and obviously there were, and we'll get to that, but you're actually going to be okay. I know exactly that moment. And I might cry because I, I know exactly that moment. Um, we were at the gym (laughs) like we did a lot back then. And, um, I was, I was dancing or doing whatever because I wasn't a big fan of the equipment. Um, and all of a sudden, and I, I don't know, it was totally random, right? It, it like moment, but it popped into my head and it said, Hey, Taya, you have the key to your own kingdom. And I burst into tears and I ran to you. I don't know if you remember this. And I said, Aaron, no one else has the key to my kingdom. And I just like, I was bawling in the middle of the gym. Everyone's like looking at me, but yeah, that was, that was the moment. It was like, oh, I'm okay. I was over by the punching bag. Yep. I remember that. Mm-hmm. I remember that. I mean, you coming up to me, burst into tears was a daily occurrence, but. <laughs> multiple, multiple a day thing. Yes. But I do remember that. I didn't know that that was the moment. What was, was it? Was it, was it clarity? Was it, what was that moment? It was just, I think it was more of an acceptance of myself for the first time ever in my life. Like, I wouldn't call it self-love in that moment, but I I really think it was like realizing that everything that I had been searching for in the rave scene, in drugs, in unhealthy relationships, um, actually was already in me. Um, and I, you know, I, I really shifted my focus to treatment being an external experience to being an internal experience. Um, and that was huge. I don't think I did any real work until I had that moment. So let's, let's move forward. Um, <laughs> you, you left fire mountain, um, you shocked the world by enrolling in college But again, you and I talked about that on the last podcast. I jest, but you and I talked about those moments where you realize you're smart, where you, where you're just like, Oh, like everything I believed was wrong. And, and that took place for you in college. Yeah. I, I think we have to take one step back to Eagle Rock. Oh, um, Eagle Rock. How did I forget, forget Eagle, Eagle Rock? Rock. <laughs> you were the first Eagle Rock. We just had another graduate join Eagle Rock. Oh, like, 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 I think, I think she's like our 11th, uh, uh, kid to go from Fire Mountain to Eagle Rock. Amazing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Eagle Rock. I remember showing up, you and Chris took me up for the tour and I was like, I'm not getting out of the car. And I like <laughs> threw up it and I was like, literally you guys dragged me out of the car. And I was like in all black and with my hair in my face, we all know that tail look. Yes. And, um, raccoon eyes and I was like I'm not going here I hate this school and then I ended up graduating from there I remember I your school. graduation I have it it's in my rotation on my desktop that's why I can't believe I forget it and it's uh I, I was there at your high school graduation yeah. it's a great yeah, school so I, yeah I think Eagle Rock really opened up um the door for me and really made me realize that I was smart um and and I I think yeah I just you know, 
I had teachers that took me seriously and didn't see me as this problem kid um, and this kid who just had a hard time focusing and was like super dramatic all the freaking time. (laughs) (laughs) How was it? What was it like for relationships at Eagle Rock? Because when you came out of New Vista, relationships, drug use, selling drugs, like that was the life of Taya. It was, it was just one abhorrent relationship after another dancing, go, go drug use on and on and on. You hit fire mountain, you go to Eagle rock and they had really serious rules against relationships. And you and I both know that it happens. It goes on. You can't stop teen love, blah, blah, blah. But how was it there? Was that a place that you rewrote yourself or did you feel the, the, the old pants the, like, did you feel yourself trying to put on the old pants and go back to the way things were because of familiarity? Not at all. Really? I actually, yeah. I mean, maybe a little bit in the beginning. Um, but, but really not, not really at all. And, and it's funny because, you know, at New Vista, I was such a rule breaker, right? Yeah. I, I got expelled. I was selling drugs. I was doing some really serious stuff that could have ended up pretty badly. Um, but when I got to Eagle Rock, like I was what they would call like the straight A student. And like I had no dings. So they have a ding system. Yeah. It's it's kind of complicated, but um, you know, if you're late or you you break a rule or whatever, you get a ding. And if you don't get any dings at the end of the whole trimester, you get you know, a huge prize, like a hundred dollars from Philbert or whatever. Um, and so I went through like my entire career with zero dings. I think I got one ding and I like had a meltdown about it and got (laughs) it removed. I did like 20 hours of community service so that I could get it removed. It was ridiculous. Um, but like, I was so afraid to break rules and I I'm still like that today. Like I do not like to break rules. I'm, I'm the person who doesn't even run a yellow light because I'm like, I don't want to get a ticket. <laughs> um, and so that's just, yeah, I think I just reinvented myself and I, I really was able to see why the rules were in place. And I think that's what put me a step ahead. All the other high school students, you know, they couldn't see why we didn't have an open campus or why we couldn't have relationships. Um, or why even we couldn't wear our headphones, um, during the day, you know, stuff like that. But you saw it, you, you understood. Yeah. And so, and I, I blossomed with those rules. Like I just like, for the first time ever, school wasn't about relationships or social, um, you know, interactions. It was about learning for me. And I realized I love to learn, (laughs) which is why I'm going back to school for a PhD for many more years of my life is because I love to learn. So, so it was Eagle Rock that gave you that that gift. That's incredible. Yeah. It was science classes actually at Eagle Rock. Um, and realizing like how much I love chemistry and sciencey stuff and, you know, I would have my teacher, she would get so annoyed because I live, my house parents were the, uh, science (laughs) teacher and so do you stand at their bedroom door as well (laughs) i was just gonna say it continued they would have to lock their door early because i'd be like five minutes to curfew can we talk go to bed taya (laughs) but one more thing (laughs) one more thing so then uh csu yeah and and psychology yeah what was your favorite part about psychology I mean, I think for me, my favorite part of psychology is just realizing like 
how broad it is. Um, I think there's just so, it's so interesting and we're always learning. And, and again, with, with me, like, I love the limitless, you know, fields, the fields that it'll never end, you know, we'll constantly be learning and changing. And um, so it just fits me really well. Um, the cognitive piece, I love brains, brains are so cool. So um, yeah, I love, I love all of the neuroscience and the the cognitive science aspects of psychology. Two big questions. Do you have yeah. a, do you have a relapse experience a relapse recovery experience? I do. Um, so it was actually right before I started CSU. Um, my mom took my sister and I to Costa Rica for yeah. three months um, after I graduated high school. Um, and I felt myself, I slipped back into old patterns a little bit. Um, you know, cause I was the, the blonde American girl and, um, there was some attention and, um, I relapsed really hard with cocaine for almost the whole three months that I was there. Wow. Um, and it was really intense. I, I went to a music festival there, um, you know, and, and just was using and, and just out of it and put myself in really dangerous situations that not only were dangerous, but extra dangerous because I, I barely spoke Spanish at the time and I was in a foreign country. Um, and I actually, I remember reaching out to you. Um, I got really sick, um, at one point, like a respiratory thing, cause my immune system was just depleted at that point. Um, from using for three months. And I reached out to, you know, I was like, I don't know what to do. And you didn't respond. And I think right away, you didn't respond right away. And that was, that was a moment that I was like, okay, I have to do it myself. Like no one else is going to pick me up. So, you know, I told my mom, I wasn't feeling good. My, my cold, my respiratory thing was a great, cause she didn't know, okay. um, a great cover. And I, I detoxed and I spent the remainder of the trip, um, sober. And that was really my last real dip. When did you tell your mom? I don't know if I ever told her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She might hear it on this. Hi, mom. <laughs> She's going to be like, ah, well, yeah, that's my daughter. Uh, yes. She'll tell the whole world before she tells me. <laughs> yep. Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> well, all right. So then my, my last question is you got two kids. Yeah. What did what are you going to do when, if you see this emerge in your own children? I mean, I think the first thing I'm doing is already starting now. Um, and something I mentioned is, is the processing and the having open, open conversations that my mom didn't have with me. My daughter is four. Um, and we've been having some really hard conversations, um, you know, and, and just, we try and be open with her about everything. You know, obviously there's some things we don't, we don't bring up now, but you know, when she, when she talks to us about them, I'm not going to sugarcoat and I'm not going to, oh gosh, we're not going to talk about that. You know, we already at four, we've been having conversations about race and about death. And, you know, um, we've had political conversations with her um, and just, you know, just to open that line of communication with her now at four of like, there's no question that, you know, I'm going to see is too grown up for her you know, no question that I'm going to be like, oh, you're not ready for that. Um, cause I'm a strong believer when kids ask, they're ready, you know, and it may feel too young, but they're obviously asking for a reason. Um, so yeah, I think, 
I think that's my first step is just starting now with open and honest dialogue and conversation. Um, and then, yeah, just continue. And, and I think setting supports in place for my kids um, early, you know, not, not in crisis mode, but early on um, and realizing I'm not always going to be their best friend, you know, and that they're not always going to want to come to me, but setting up someone else who they can, they can go to, to ask those questions or get the support they need. Do you have regrets? Um, I think my only regret is not forgiving myself. I think it, and that sounds kind of silly, but I just, I have held so much guilt, um, about my behavior and, you know, the situations that I put myself in, um, and some of the experiences that I've had. Um, and I think not forgiving myself was a huge problem or, you know, just a huge, a huge step back for me, um, and held me back from, from growing. What's the next part of your, your growth? What's, what's the next Taya challenge you got to tackle? I mean, I, I think continuing to just see myself self-worth, um, you know, sharing my story has been huge. And so continuing to do this, um, yeah. And just continuing to realize that this is a, a lifelong process. It's not something that I'm just going to wake up and be like, all my trauma and, and stuff is magically gone. It's cause it's not, you know, it still comes up. This has been my conversation with Taya. Taya was the first girl we ever worked with at fire mountain. And as you can, as you can see, and, and I, I talked to so many parents who, when, when I first meet them, their, their kids, their daughters are in that place that Taya was where everything Everything was connected to her pain. Everything she did seemed to be traced back to these, all her fruits were connected to the roots that just began at three years old in pain. And now to to listen to her talk about her own kids and her own marriage and her education and becoming a doctor and learning how the brain works. Tay is applying to become a, a to study the brain and, and for someone who battled, worked with, struggled with her own brain for so long, of course, that's the best thing she could do. So huge thanks to Taya for telling her story. Parents, go to parenting teens that struggle, reach out, connect with a support group, listen to the stories from the teens themselves as they grow out and up into adulthood and make sure you're asking the hard questions from people who can give you the honest answers. I want to thank Deepin Productions and Your Cause Consulting for supporting this podcast. Everything from writing to the music, to the editing, to making sure this podcast gets in front of the right people. And I want to thank my listeners for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast. I'm Aaron Huey. I've been your host. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again.